I've been through two strikes, uh, and long strikes, uh, both in 89 and 95, and uh, it's no fun. But you know what? I brought my kids onto the strike line with me and my wife, so they knew why Dad wasn't bringing home a check. They, so they knew what was going on. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Mario Cervantes, a skilled factory worker who makes the tools that make the planes for a Boeing aircraft in Wichita, Kansas, is featured in the new season of America Works, the podcast series from the Library of Congress. Mario was interviewed by Brianna O'Higgins on behalf of the Kansas Humanities Council as part of an American Folklife Center Archie Green Fellowship to document Boeing aircraft workers. Shortly before this interview, Boeing, which had been a community mainstay for decades, announced it was permanently closing all its factories, offices, and facilities in Wichita. Mario talks about his family's connection to Boeing, his pride in his trade, and his pride in working for Boeing. He also discusses his Hispanic heritage and how it's impacted his career, labor unrest and his commitment to fair employment, his union, and his disappointment that Boeing would no longer be a presence in Wichita. After three days, the hole was big enough for the trapped miners to crawl through, and they were hoisted to the top. The last man to crawl to safety looked back and saw Rex staring at him, and no doubt wondering why he too could not be rescued. Also this week, Saul Schneiderman brings us the touching true story of Rex the Mine Pony, saved by the coal miners who he helped save from a mine collapse. Plus, labor history in two, from this date in 1909, 1992, and 2011. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. these tired old bones back to the light. these tired old bones back to I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. What follows is for those who want to change the world from what it is to what they believe it should be. Those words were penned in the opening paragraph of the book Rules for Radicals, whose author, Saul Alinsky, was born on this day in labor history. The year was 1909. Saul Alinsky became one of the most famous community organizers in Chicago and even U.S. history. Alinsky was born to Russian Jewish immigrants. He earned his degree in archaeology from the University of Chicago, but could not find work due to the Great Depression. His first turn at organizing was that of a part-time labor organizer for the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Soon, he left labor organizing for a more broad-based community organizing. He worked in the back of the yards, forming the Back of the Yards Council, which became a prototype for scores of community organizations. In 1940, Alinsky formed the Industrial Areas Foundation, which served as a leader in community organizing training. He traveled the country helping to form similar community organizations. He then worked with African-American organizations, most notably helping to found Chicago's Woodland Organization. The Woodland Organization took on issues such as segregated housing and community health. The Woodland Organization remains active 
to this day. Alinsky's Rules for Radicals became a guidebook for organizing strategies for countless campaigns. A Time Magazine article claimed that American democracy is being altered by Alinsky's ideas, and National Review Magazine founder William F. Buckley said Alinsky was, quote, very close to being an organizational genius. At the core of his book are 12 straightforward maxims. For example, a good tactic is one your people enjoy. Another is, keep the pressure on, never let up. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works podcast features excerpts from a longer interview with senior plaster pattern maker Mario Cervantes, a skilled factory worker who makes the tools that make the planes for Boeing aircraft in Wichita, Kansas. Mr. Cervantes was interviewed by Brianna O'Higgins on behalf of the Kansas Humanities Council as part of an Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center to document Boeing aircraft workers. Shortly before this interview took place, Boeing, which had been a community mainstay for decades, announced it was permanently closing all its factories, offices, and facilities in Wichita. During their in-depth interview, Mr. Cervantes talks about his family's connection to Boeing, his pride in his trade, and his pride in being connected to Boeing. He also discusses his Hispanic heritage and how it has impacted his career, labor unrest and his commitment to fair employment, his union, and his disappointment that Boeing would no longer be a presence in Wichita. My father worked there, of course, and he knew that there was a position opening up in the uh, tooling department, plaster pattern maker. And boy, I just went every day, put my application in when they used to have a, when they had a physical HR where you could do that. But it was like every day I'd go and check on my rec- record or my resume and all that. And finally they got tired of looking at me and interviewed me and set me up in tooling classes and took eight weeks of tooling classes and ended up a pattern maker. I was 19. And actually, I think at that time, I don't want to say it was a quota, but being a minority might have helped me a little bit because tooling was uh, predominantly, uh, what I want to say, Anglo, probably. Uh, so getting minorities at that time into those positions were something that I think the government made them do, probably. Yeah. It seemed like forever, but it did, you know, it was really a short span trying to get on at Boeing because, you know, I. I was in a beef packing plant, and then I went to Cessna for a little bit, and everybody at Cessna said, oh, you don't want to go to Boeing, you know, but my dad wanted me to go out there, so it was just kind of like a perfect fit for me, you know, so I was very fortunate, really. It's been a blessing to be able to work for him. I guess I knew they paid well, and I knew all I had was a high school diploma, and I needed somebody to teach me skills so I could provide a living with my family, uh, and they gave me skills, and kind of, this is where I'm at today, you know, because of Boeing. Um, 
you mentioned what you were doing a little bit, but what was your job title at Boeing? Uh, plaster pattern maker. And what did And you? what we did was tool up, uh, make tools uh, that actually made parts for the planes. Uh, and at that time, they did every detail inside house. There were no vendors or anything, so the work was was a lot of work. But uh, you know, we tooled up for the 757, 767, so they could pull skins and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There was a demand for workers at that time, and uh, kind of a lot of older guys like I am now, you know, are getting that point of retirement. You know, they needed to train other people in, and the young ones were the future. So, no, it was pretty. There was a bunch of us. There was a whole bunch of us. Did you have to have special training? You know, on-the-job training. You know, there's nothing better than, uh, you know, on-the-job training when you can, you know, work next to a veteran that's been doing this forever. And, you know, not everything that the engineers put on paper would work in the shop. So the old guys would know, you know, how to work a job and to teach us how to do the same thing. So, yeah, that's the best kind of training. I worked on the commercial side. Mm -hmm. Of course, we did military, some military work over there because we were just one big tool shop at the time. So, yeah, both sides. But my predominantly, I was commercial. I've never been laid off. It's been, again, that's been kind of lucky. I've just been fortunate where uh, things happen inside the tooling department. I mean, we weathered a lot of layoffs in the 80s, uh, and I just was fortunate that we merged both plaster and plastics together. And all the plaster guys came in first cause to build the, the patterns, uh, and then the plastic guys came in second. So, uh, you know, we were fortunate to get in the door first, so they had to leave before we did. And, it was. It got up to my year when they were laying off, but then again, they started instead of the to A through Z, they started Z through A. So again, I weathered it. So I've been very fortunate. There's not been very many people that can say that they've been not laid off since you know for th over 30 years now. Wow. Yeah. What was it like experiencing strike for the first time? It was tough. I had three small children at the time. I've been through two strikes. Uh, and long strikes, uh, both in 89 and 95, and uh, it's no fun. But you know what? I brought my kids onto the strike line with me and my wife, so they knew why Dad wasn't bringing home a check, they, so they knew what was going on. So it's just been something in my blood, you know, that uh, although nobody wins probably in a strike, is that, uh, you know, the result is you're, hopefully you're going to, you know, maybe not only have better benefits and salary, but, you know, a safer workplace for everybody. Kind of justice in the workplace. So, yeah, strikes are no fun, but, but uh, something that you have to do from time to time. I'm a Boeing employee, and I'm proud to be a Boeing employee. You know, when I see Sunday morning in the commercials about the defense, you know, what we're protecting America, and that's Boeing, you know, it's a sense of pride that we're helping out. You know, it might be a little piece, but, you know, we're all, as Boeing employees, at the end result, you know, providing these great products, you know, to keep America safe, to have America travel, you know. So, yeah, it's a loyalty that, you know, like I say, you spend more waking hours with those folks out there than you do your own family. So you create bonds, and uh, one big bond was with the Boeing Company. Like I say, I was proud every morning to cross that gate. The airplanes you worked on were really leading-edge technology. I mean, 757, 767. How did the impact of technology uh, on the new airplanes impact the union? Oh, it did because they don't need as many workers, uh, you know, with the 
to, to build a plane. I mean, you used to say plant two, you know, and there used to be a lot more rivet pounders now, but through automation, they've gone to machines, computers all set up and uh, that are doing a lot of the uh, riveting now. So, you know, yeah, we've seen a lot of change out there where we don't need a bigger workforce. You know, as we used to back in the day. Even my work, the plaster pattern work, they don't do it that way anymore. I'm kind of like a dinosaur now. It's all done on a digital. It's all computerized now. So we don't need to set up any mocks and sweep in a 41 section as big as the house, you know. And so everything's done on computer. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of change out there. A lot of change. Mm -hmm. When Boeing announced that they would be withdrawing completely, mm -hmm. what what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, it was pretty shocked, you know, and then you kind of wonder, boy, what about me? You know, what happens to me? You know, and I'm not at that age yet uh, where I can retire. I've got a couple more years, so I'm hoping I'm going to sneak that in before they shut the doors. I'm, in fact, I'm actually, I hope I'm the one that turns the lights out and shuts the door, but I'm not sure that's going to happen, though. But uh, it's, it's devastating. It's like losing a family member, really. You know, for one, I never thought they'd sell. Boeing's provided a very good living for me. I've raised three wonderful children, uh, and it's just, uh, it's hard to see them go. It's tough. I mean, you become, you do become loyal, even if you have strikes. You know, you sure, you, you for that short span, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you hate everybody at that time, you know, and, uh, but then you go back and you learn to work together again. And, you know, we're striving to do, again, to make Boeing successful. You've been listening to plaster pattern maker and Boeing Aircraft Factory employee, Mario Cervantes, who was interviewed for America Works by the Kansas Humanities Council as part of the American Folklife Center's Occupational Folklife Project. To hear the complete interview with Mr. Cervantes and other Boeing factory workers, please visit www.loc.gov forward slash folklife or just search online for the Occupational Folklife Project. This is folklorist Nancy Gross on behalf of the American Folklife Center and with a special thanks to AFC intern Camille Acosta for her help with this episode. Thank you for listening to America Works. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1992. That was the day the gravediggers of Chicago ended their 43-day strike. The United Press International's headline declared, The dead will rest in peace now that Chicago-area gravediggers have reached a tentative contract. The gravediggers were part of Service Employees International Union Local 106. The strike started on December 20th when workers at four Chicago area cemeteries walked off the job. At issue was wages, overtime, and health benefits. 22 other local cemeteries then locked out their workers. With the gravediggers on strike and locked out, more than 1,000 burials were delayed. The Chicago Rabbinical Society was able to get a court order for some of the burials to go forward due to Orthodox Jewish practice that requires burial within 24 hours. By the time the strike was settled, 
300 burials were still waiting. Unless there is a labor dispute, grave digging is work that does not often find itself in the headlines. It is one of the many unsung types of labor that it takes to keep a big city like Chicago operating. In 1974, the famous radio host Studs Terkel published a book based on oral histories he had conducted with working people over the course of three years. The title of the book was simply Working. The book featured interviews that ranged from jazz musicians to pharmacists, farmers to welders. One of the most poignant interviews was with a grave digger named Almer Ruiz. Ruiz said, I usually wear myself some black sunglasses. I never go to a funeral without sunglasses. It's a good idea because your eyes is the first thing that shows when you have a big emotion. Always these black sunglasses. I am a pit pony, I've worked all my life In this dark old coal mine, where there's no day or night All I last when it's over, I work through my time Lift these tired old bones back to the light Lift these tired old bones back to the Up next, Saul Schneiderman brings us the touching and true story of Rex the Mine Pony, saved by the coal miners who he helped save from a mine collapse. Rex the Mine Pony by George Corson There was Rex, the Shetland pony who hauled coal in a small shaft mine near Bicknell, Indiana. On June 2, 1923, Rex and three miners, James Bertillo, Frank Maberto and Joe Bernardi were entombed in the mine as a result of a shaft cave-in. For many hours it was feared that men and pony were dead, but a tube forced through the debris enabled rescuers to hear the voice of one of the entombed. Rescuers worked uninterruptedly, boring a hole big enough for the men to squeeze through. It was a slow process, and meanwhile, the trap miners were fed soup and other food through a pipe. At the same time, shelled corn was dropped down for Rex, but this had to be abandoned because the corn clogged the pipe. So the men shared their soup with Rex, who reciprocated by permitting them to huddle close to his warm body. At length, after three days, the hole was big enough for the trap miners to crawl through and they were hoisted to the top. The last man to crawl to safety looked back and saw Rex staring at him, and no doubt wondering why he too could not be rescued. Safety engineers, finding the shaft in a dangerous condition, decided to leave Rex to his fate. But in response to a universal demand that Rex be rescued at any risk, the company finally posted a $200 reward for the pony's rescue. The task was undertaken but had to be temporarily halted because of black damp after 12 hours of effort. A corn shredder with a powerful blower helped restore circulation and enabled resumption of the rescue work. Ten days after his imprisonment, rescuers finally broke into the tunnel, and there, staring at them from the other side of the hole, was Rex, still alive 
and apparently none the worse for his experience. The hole was enlarged, and he was hauled to the surface by a pulley. News of the rescue spread throughout the countryside, and within a short time several thousand persons swarmed to the mine. An impromptu parade was formed, which led by a band, swung down Bicknell's main street. At the head of it, cheered by throngs on the sidewalk, was Rex, flanked by joyous children. From then on, Rex became the pet of the whole town. He had a stall of his own in one of the local stables, the expense of which was borne by the five miners who had risked their own lives to rescue him. A year went by, and hard times hit Bicknell. Its mind shut down, and the miners were out of work. Rex's board bill became overdue. Word reached Rex's five rescuers, all jobless and broke, that their pet was about to be put on the auction block in order to pay his board bill. They could not bear to have Rex sold to strangers, and so they made a collection. And Rex returned, the equine hero of Bicknell's miners and children, until his death, which occurred in 1935, twelve years after his rescue. George Corson was the author of Minstrels of the Mine Patch and was known as the folklorist of the coalfields. Saul Schneiderman is the editor of Friday's Labor Folklore, a free weekly newsletter with stories and songs inspired by Con Carbon, the minstrel of the Mine Patch, a breaker boy from Anthracite, Pennsylvania, who believed in working-class solidarity, heritage, and tradition. In searching for music for today's show, I came across a short piece commemorating the 25 years since the last pit pony left the final deep coal mine in Northumberland, England, reminding us of this bit of lost labor history. Now the miners, they work for the same poor pay. They get to leave at the end of the day The dreams that they dig for will never be found It's like ponies weren't born to live underground I am a pit pony, I've worked all my life In this dark old coal mine where there's no day or night All I last when it's over I work through my time Lift these tired old bones Back to the light Lift these tired old bones Back to the On Sunday, we're celebrating 25 years since the last pit pony uh, came out of the, the last deep mine in the northeast, Ellington Colliery up in Northumberland. So, quite an event uh, to celebrate what was a huge part of the, the northeast and the country's mining heritage. I mean, we've, we've got some kind of um, plans for Sunday, especially around about the 12 noon mark, because that's what the time the ponies came up from underground at Ellington. So we were hoping that we would have um, Marley in full authentic pit harness, perhaps at the, the entrance to the drift mine, so people can come, meet Marley, ask any questions, children can pet him, have some photos to taken um, and would probably also be doing some um, pit tub 
uh, hauling demonstrations outside of the colliery stables in the pit yard um, and just mainly being meet and greet um, maybe even deliver some coal because Marley has a little uh, tip cart so we might get the kids involved in shoveling coal and delivering it to the school or the cottages as well just so they get a real hands-on feel of what it was like to be working around pit ponies. So the, the part of Beamish we're in now is the colliery village and you can see behind me the coal mine and this is set in the Edwardian period, so around 1913. And 1913 was the peak of the coal industry. The country as a whole had over 70,000 pit ponies actually working underground. In County Durham, 22,000 of those pit ponies, so an absolutely colossal uh, amount of horsepower. And that was really uh, to move the coal. Uh, before 1842 it was women and children that moved the coal underground and then 1842 Mines Act banned women from working underground and children under 10. So the mine owners needed to find a new method of moving coal and that was pit ponies. Uh, small stocky ponies that could fit in the narrow roadways uh, but were able to pull quite heavy loads. And in this area, one of the main breeders of pit ponies was Lord Londonderry, who had a, an island in uh, the Shetland Islands, the Isle of Noss, and they actually bred ponies there. Uh, they were known as Galloways, and then they were shipped down to the northeast and worked across uh, Lord Londonderry's mines and everybody else's mines in the northeast. A real huge amount of horsepower. I am a pit pony. I've worked all my life in this dark old coal mine. But there's no day or night All I last when it's over I work through my time Lift these tired old bones Back to the light Lift these tired old bones Back to the I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2011. That was the day California first celebrated its state holiday known as Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution. Born on January 30th, 1919, Fred Korematsu was among those victimized by President Roosevelt's wartime executive order 9066, mandating Japanese-American internment. Born in Oakland, California, Korematsu worked as a shipyard welder. He was arrested and eventually convicted after refusing to report to authorities for internment. The ACLU took up his case, hoping to test the legality of 9066. Korematsu and his family were relocated to the Central Utah Wars Relocation Center in Topaz, Utah. There he worked eight hours a day for $12 a month and waited for his case to travel through the legal system. It eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court. In Korematsu v. United States, the court held that compulsory exclusion, though constitutionally suspect is justified during circumstances of emergency and peril. After his release, Korematsu worked odd jobs and faced discrimination and wage theft. 
he eventually resettled in Oakland with his wife and children. In 1983, Korematsu's conviction was finally vacated. Fifteen years later, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He became a tireless activist for civil liberties and worked to ensure internment could never happen again. Before his death in 2005, he served on the Constitution Project's Liberty and Security Committee. He warned, quote, no one should ever be locked away simply because they share the same race, ethnicity, or religion as a spy or terrorist. If that principle was not learned from the internment of Japanese Americans, then these are very dangerous times for our democracy. Fred Korematsu Day is also celebrated in Hawaii, Virginia, and Florida. Side by side with the miners who worked every day For one pail of grain and a handful of hay We lived in a stable right next to the shack Two hundred feet down in the dark and the dark I am a pit pony, I've worked all my life In this dark old coal mine where there's no That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the America Works podcast, the podcast series from the Library of Congress. We've got a link in the show notes where you can search for America Works in your favorite podcast app. Thanks also to Saul Schneiderman, editor of the always inspiring Friday's Labor Folklore Weekly Newsletter. We've got a link to subscribe in the show notes. Our music today was Pit Pony's Tale by Gordon Carter, from his album, Diary of a Coal Town, available on Bandcamp. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdat. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. I hope there's a place where pit ponies go when we're done with the work Two weekend too slow No muck to your knees Cold slag or gas Just the warmth of the sunlight The feel of green grass I am a pit pony I worked all my life In this dark old coal mine Where there's no day or night All I'll ask when it's over I work through my time Lift these tired old bones back to the line. Lift these tired old bones back to the line. I am a pit pony. I've worked all my life 
In this dark old coal mine There's no dear night All I last when it's over I work through my time Lift these tired old bones Back to the light Lift these tired old bones Back to the light